Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So great to have you here, as always, and also great to have Taylor Haygood on the show today. He is a professor of English at Florida Atlantic University. He is a literary critic, an internationally renowned scholar on William Faulkner, and as an author, he has numerous books to his credit, including the one with a title that got me to reach out to him. It's a subject I've always wanted to cover on the show. String Bean, The Life and Murder of a Country Music Legend. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It is such an honor to be on this podcast and to be included with so many illustrious writers and illustrious books, and uh, some of the recent ones particularly have been exciting for me, so I'm very honored to be a part of this, and thank you so much for this invitation and opportunity. Uh, thank you for those kind words. So your new book is a bit of a departure, right, from, from the subjects you usually write about. What was it about the story that you connected with? Well, that is true. I I have uh, spent most of my career thus far writing books of literary criticism on William Faulkner and Southern literature, African-American literature, and those kind of things. But long before I was a literary critic, I was interested in old country music. I started playing the banjo when I was about 12 years old, and the guitar and the piano, and I had a lot of interest in music. And I found out about String Bean when I was a kid, probably about 12 years old or so. I saw a picture of him in an old book, and then I pestered my parents into taking me to the Country Music Hall of Fame, and there I saw his banjo. I didn't know at the time that it was a very particular kind of banjo, but I saw it there in the Country Music Hall of Fame, and it just spoke to me. The head was worn away from where he had been playing in the particular style he played, which was a claw hammer or what he called a a rapping style. And I was 
so fascinated with that instrument. And then I remembered my parents as a kid. I remember my parents talking about his having been murdered. And so that was really the beginning of my interest in him. And I had seen, you know, when I saw that picture of him, I thought, wow, this guy is so strange looking as this long torso and these little short legs. And I thought, what is the deal with this guy? Then later on, after I had, about the time I was promoted to full professor, I was really interested in, I've been reading a lot of biographies and I wanted to to change a little bit of the direction of my writing. And I ran across a video of String Bean and I thought, hey, I remembered him and I thought I would like to read a book about him, but there really wasn't one. There was a book that had been written in 1975 about the, the investigation of the murders. And I managed to get a copy of it. It's not easy to get copies, but I managed to get a copy, I think, on eBay. And I read that very quickly, but it left out so much. It didn't have anything really about the trial. It really told the investigation from only one viewpoint, uh, from one of the viewpoints of the of one investigator, and then it really did not give much of Streambean's life. And so I thought, I guess I'm the guy to write this book. And it really set me on a journey that was very unique. It was a journey that took me through writing a biography and true crime. And those trying to stitch those together was, was pretty difficult. So not only content-wise, but even style-wise, writing for a general readership and also trying to to put together two really very different stories and yet two stories that need each other. They, they can't quite stand alone, um, you might say, by themselves. So you have to put them together. So that that's kind of the history of how I got into this project. So String Beans' real name was David Aikman. Uh, he was born on June 17th, 1915 in rural Kentucky. What were things like for him growing up in that part of the country? Well, I appreciate that question very much. It's a very fascinating part of the country to this day. In fact, if one were to drive there, you would find that one would find that the cell phone reception is not very good. And if you go to the Dairy Queen in the town, you'll, you're liable to hear country music from the 1950s. It, it feels like a place that's uh, kind of from another time, really. And uh, in his time, in Stream Bean's time, of course, he grew up uh, right, right. He basically was born right into the teeth of, of the United States' involvement in World War One, And, uh, of course, he grew up throughout the 20s in that part of the world. And I, while the rest of the country was booming in some ways, and at least parts of it, I don't know that Kentucky necessarily, or at least that part of Kentucky necessarily felt that. But certainly with the coming in of the Depression, with the beginning of the Great Depression, Stream Bean and his family were very poor, and they, they benefited. They did benefit from the New Deal, but like a lot of people in the rural South or rural Appalachia or the rural part of the South, they faced a lot of poverty, and uh, he came of age, like a lot of people in that time, not trusting banks. Of course, the, many banks had failed. And so he and actually his future wife both were, like a lot of people of that generation, tended to be distrustful of banks and they wanted to keep cash and use cash and be very frugal in their lives. So that that was a very shaping influence. That was an influence or a, a situation, I guess you could say, that shaped him very much early on. Right. 
you write that as a boy, he had had kind of a reputation for being a little lazy. <laughs> right. So one of the interesting things about doing the research for this book is that a lot of people who knew Stream Bean when he was a kid are no longer around. I mean, practically nobody is still around who would have known him as a kid. But what I would find is that just asking around and getting to talk to different people in the area and family members, but particularly people in the area, he um, he did seem to have a little bit of a lazy streak. He seemed to be a little more interested in playing music or going fishing. He loved, loved, loved to go fishing. That was something that followed him through his entire life. Wasn't maybe so much into the work of the farm, the the kind of tasks you do all day, every day. And of course, the part of Kentucky he was in uh, is remains very agricultural and tobacco would have been grown. And that's one of those 13 month out of the year crops. And there are a lot of steps in it and stages in it. And it's hard work and trying to grow corn. These are not big fields. This is mainly hilly, borderline mountainous areas, frankly. And uh, I think he was somebody who, who really was more interested in playing music. He loved play, he learned to play play the banjo initially, mainly from his dad, and he loved to play music. That's that's what he enjoyed. Loved to go fishing, and not really so much of a farm working kind of a guy. Even though he would, when he grew up, he would buy land. He did have a tractor, and he did allegedly or somehow or another he must have worked the land. I guess, but. He was never really known for being a, a very dedicated farmer. <laughs> and I think he, he did seem to have a, yeah, kind of a reputation for being a little on the lazy side. And I think this caused some friction with his father pretty early on, in fact. Right, yeah. So not only did his love of music come from his father, like you said, but it also came from the radio. Yes, sir. Uh, what kind of music was he listening to and who were some of his early influences? Well, the influences, there were a few. There was his father. The fa- his father was the main influence, and he was a banjo player, and he was known to play in a clawhammer style. But also in that part of Kentucky, there were a number of people playing a two-finger picking style with a banjo. So a lot of people know the three-finger style that's so common in our time, uh, or clawhammer is pretty common too. But the two-finger style is not maybe as often practiced, but he did learn that apparently from some maybe some people in the area, but he also did indeed have an influence from listening to music, particularly on the radio. He was a huge fan of a man named David Macon or Dave Macon. Uh, usually his stage name was Uncle Dave Macon. And of course, his name is very similar. Dave Macon and David Aikman are very, very similar. And people in his life would point that out. But he was a huge fan of Dave, Uncle Dave Aikman. Uh, Macon, <laughs> Macon playing the banjo, and he would listen to him play on the Grand Ole Opry, which was uh, on WSM, and started uh, in 1925 when Stream Bean was st- when David Aitman was still a little kid. But it was a big, powerful radio station, WSM, and it went all over the South, and he was able to listen to it. And like a lot of people in the, in that part of the world, he grew up essentially listening to that music, and he was particularly fond of. Uncle Dave Macon, who had had his own interesting career, he had been in transportation in Middle Tennessee. That had been his career, and that became obsolete. He did mule transportation. He would use a mule power, I guess you could say, to haul materials in the Manchester area in Tennessee. And he essentially uh, became that became obsolete with the 
uh, internal combustion engine, and he didn't really have much interest in those machines. So he said, uh, that's not for me. And instead, he took up a career in uh, entertainment. <laughs> so much like Jimmy Rogers, the country music father, who also had been involved in the train, he was a train guy, and he left that to become an entertainer, mainly for health reasons, it seems. But uh, both of these gentlemen started that kind of entertainment career in the case of Uncle Dave Macon very late in life. But he became a big star, and David Aikman or String Bean became a big fan of his and allegedly was telling his brother that he was going to be, and his family, that he was going to be playing on WSM someday when he grew up also. So one of the New Deal programs that David is able to take advantage of is the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps. And as he works for them, he continues to develop his banjo skills until he's finally able to get onto the radio, right? Well, it's an interesting story. He was in a CCC camp, and he got word of a banjo contest that was being held in McKee, which is the county seat of where he was living, Jackson County, or at least where he was from. And uh, he, there had been a number of banjo contests and other contests in Kentucky at the time, but he participated in it, and he, he did not win it. <laughs> he did not win the contest, but he did participate, and he impressed the gentleman who was putting on the contest, a guy named Asa Martin, who was coming down out of Lexington. I believe the radio station there was uh, WLAP, if I remember correctly. And, and he went, uh, anyway, stream, Asa Martin invited David Aikman up to Lexington, and he went up there. Even though he didn't win the contest, he was hired to play the banjo, and Asa Martin called. This is where he got his name, actually, is the name Stream Bean. Asa Martin couldn't remember this kid's name. He remembered hiring him, but he couldn't remember his name, and so he just said, come on up here, Stream Bean, and play us a song. And uh, Stream Bean, David Aitman, of course, a very tall kid, thin kid. He looked kind of like a Stream Bean to him, I think. And Now, early on, though, Stream Bean was – promoted or advertised in the plural. He called himself string beans sometimes also. In fact, that happened a lot throughout most of his career, actually. Even later in his career, one would see him referred to in the plural. But it was that singular form that stuck, I think, because it was, uh, I think it was more evocative. And and later he he would become string bean, the Kentucky wonder, right? (laughs) Yes, right. That's a, that's a, a brand, that's a strain of string beans. So that's uh, the Kentucky Wonder string beans. And if anybody listening in is a gardener, the, you may know that particular kind of, uh, I think it comes both as a pole and a bush style of bean, but uh, they're a good type of string bean, the Kentucky Wonders. Yeah. So at some point pretty early on, right, he, he starts to take on this comedic persona. Right this hillbilly hayseed character. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yeah, pretty early on. And he wasn't alone in doing that, but I think people who were doing that kind of role were channeling certain other kinds of performances, even including the minstrel performances. And in fact, Stream Bean performed in blackface early on. Um, So I, I think there's been some interesting scholarship done along these lines. People 
tracing out how poor white performers or, as you say, Hayseed or Hillbilly, the big term at the time was Hillbilly music. And there was, a, there was actually a lot of controversy at the time because a lot of performers who were playing Hillbilly music did not want to play up the Hayseed image. So they would dress in suits and ties or in the case of some people like Bill Monroe, who was the founder of bluegrass music, he would make sure that all of his band members would wear, of all things, jodhpurs and riding boots and uh, hats and ties. And it was very important to them to not to look countryfied. But they found, but a number of performers also found out pretty soon that from a marketing viewpoint, they could actually get noticed more, get more traction by dressing up really even in exaggerated outfits and playing that role. So there's some interesting photographs of some early string bands, roots string, we would call them roots bands, you know, or string bands that you'll see a picture of them dressed up in very nice clothing, suits and ties, and then others or dresses or whatever. And then others, they'll be in these hayseed kinds of um, outfits. And that was an issue. And it has been for a long time. It was, I think for a long time, kind of an issue in country music. I think there was a lot of tension about that. But String Bean, interestingly, embraced that image pretty readily, and especially as he delved more into comedy. Even when he would attach himself to various bands, he would look different. He would dress different in a different way than they did. So it was he kind of played up. He played all that up, and he played the, the country thing up. And, of course, the people who have continued that, they're the famous figures. Minnie Pearl would have come around the same time. Uh, later on, Archie Campbell, but then even later on in the 1990s, the Blue uh, blue Collar Comedy Tour and those people, Jeff Foxworthy and others, and even into our own time, there are a few maybe who still do that kind of thing. But uh, but anyway, he did embrace, yes, the comedy and really delved into, into that or made that part of his persona. So he was kind of a triple threat. He, he became a singer. The singing seems to have come along a little later, but he was a banjo player, singer, and comic. And above all, he was an entertainer. And that was really what he had gotten from Uncle Dave Macon more than anything else. Uncle Dave Macon was an entertainer in his own moment. And by the way, one can find a video or two still of him, some footage of him twirling his banjo and so forth and so on. He was not necessarily the best singer. He was not necessarily the best piano player, but he was really entertaining. And Stream Bean really followed in those footsteps. David Aikman really focused on that, being an entertainer. And so those different elements of it, the, the comedy and the banjo playing, the singing, those were all what made that work. And it, and it involved physical as well as, you know, verbal comedy. What's an example of a funny bit he would do as this character? Well, you know, that's interesting. So partly as he went along, but certainly when he developed his very famous costume of a very long shirt with very short pants, the physical comedy, the look alone, I have to tell you, Eric, it is amazing the impact when I go um, to places and show pictures of Stream Bean. I'll do a a lecture or something like that, and I'll I'll just put a picture of Stream Bean up there in his costume, and people just start laughing. It's, (laughs) It's hilarious. It's just amazing that it still has this impact. 
So part of it's physical comedy, and he had ways to milk that. He would do a little dance, a little jig, and he would do certain things to play that up. As far as the verbal comedy, he had a bunch of, frankly, corny jokes that he would tell. Probably his biggest thing that he got a lot of mileage out of was his letter from home. So he would write these letters, fake letters from home, as if his family was writing to him. And they would say things, you know, all diff- different kinds of jokes about, well, it's it's actually kind of nice here not having you around, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. <laughs> or there would be, again, a more kind of corny kind of joke. But that would be mainly probably his foremost thing. But he had a very dry wit. And a lot of his comedic impact would have been in the moment. It would have been on the stage with a certain kind of look and a certain kind of dry humor that, you know, hit the audience in in the moment. He was very good at that off-the-cuff kind of comment. In fact, I'll tell you one of those. There's a singer named Whispering Bill Anderson, and uh, he is absolutely a legend in our own moment, but he was very young when String Bean was in middle age, and he came on the scene, and he and String Bean and the singer Patsy Cline and some other people were making a road trip for one of the op- what they call the Opry Package shows, and uh, they all got to laughing. Uh, Patsy Cline and some of the other people in the car got to laughing about something, and String Bean looked over to Whispering Bill Anderson, and he said, "Billy boy, I think these folks have gone crazy." And then he looked at him and he said, and Billy Boy, sometimes I'm not so sure about you either. <laughs> so it was this kind of off-the-cuff kind of thing usually that sort of represented his type of humor. Very dry wit, very quick kind of humor, and, and very in its, uh, in its, I hate to use the word milieu, but in its, in its moment, I guess you would say, would be how it worked. You mentioned this in your book, that his outfit with the short pants and the long torso, it had a passing resemblance to a zoot suit, which was was made popular by black singers in the 30s and then became part of Mexican-American culture as well. And String Bean's outfit was basically a countryfied zoot suit. Yes, sir, absolutely. I think he was drawing from from that kind of look. And I think that one of the things actually I I tried to find was more connection. I should say it this way, more uh, evidence, I guess you could say of, of influence, African-American influence in his life. I mean, direct, like pointing out specific people because this, this is very doable with uncle Dave Macon or Bill Monroe or a lot of figures. You think about Elvis Presley or somebody like that had all that influence and I think it was there for a stream being too, but I, I was not able to uncover those direct influences. But I think that indirectly these were all these influences were all playing a part. There was a there was a country music figure at the time who had a little bit of a similar outfit, but he didn't have the long torso. That look is very, very much out of the zoot suit style. So yeah, I think that's it's kind of indirect. And he was also drawing from this kind of Emmett Kelly or Poirot kind of sad clown kind of figure. He would paint on this, his eyebrows would be painted on in a kind of a sad clown look. So he, he was drawing from a few sources. I don't know how conscious he was of them all the time, but, but essentially he was drawing on those, but yes, there was, there was definitely, that was a look of the time, the zoot suit. 
and his it was almost like his take on that, I think. We will be back after a brief message from our sponsors. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. So he, really his, his first break, right, was when he began working for one of the Monroe brothers. Right, yes, sir. Yeah, Charlie Monroe. Charlie and Bill had been a duo at first, and then they kind of split up, and Stream Bean got in, connected with Charlie Monroe, and it, I wouldn't say that he made a big name for himself, but it definitely was. He graduated into the major leagues, we'll say it that way. Charlie is kind of an interesting story that I guess is a too far, runs us a little too far afield, but it's a kind of an interesting story with Charlie and Bill because there was a lot of rivalry between the two. And Charlie kind of managed to, he managed to get a foothold in Wheeling, West Virginia on the on the Jamboree there, WWVA, uh, 1170 AM radio station there. and uh, But even as even in his moment of triumph, Bill Monroe kind of bested him by getting on WSM. And it was it was kind of an interesting story to where Bill Monroe's star just continually rose throughout his career where Charlie's faded. But it was still, it was definitely the big leagues at the time. 
and string being being able to get on there with Charlie Monroe playing in North Carolina primarily that that was that was a big step for him it wasn't it would not have been as big break out in a big way to the public but it definitely set the stage for him so he keeps moving up in the world of country music he plays on the Grand Ole Opry for the first time he leaves Charlie Monroe and becomes a bluegrass boy with Bill Monroe and this is when String Bean really starts to make a name for for himself and starts rubbing shoulders with uh, country royalty. Absolutely, that that really is true. And when he gets, it's with Bill Monroe that he gets onto the Grand Ole Opry for the first time, and he does. And and in some ways, he becomes country music royalty, String Bean. But uh, this is where he meets his idol, Uncle Dave Macon, and he really becomes very close to him. And Uncle Dave Macon takes him under wing. And he meets, uh, he becomes a regular on the Grand Ole Opry. Eventually, he goes off on his own uh, as a solo, first with a, as a kind of teamed up with another singer, and then ultimately as a solo act. And, you know, he was somebody that his coworkers loved him. His colleagues in the country music industry absolutely loved this guy. One of the most interesting things to watch, and anybody can go on YouTube and watch this if you really want to understand the impact of string bean in his own moment. Turn on one of those shows later on in the 1950s or 60s with Porter Wagner or the Wilburn Brothers or Dale Reeves and the people, or uh, Scruggs and Flatten Scruggs, anybody, they all love him. And even people who would not necessarily get along with each other, there was something about David Aikman that everybody loved the guy. He had no enemies, which is quite a thing to say, Uh, but he really didn't have any. But yeah, that was when he he really, that's when he broke out into the scene. And it was a great moment because this was when the Prince Albert uh, Opry segment had begun and the show was really becoming entrenched. And he was right there with it. Stream Bean is is really one of the foundational figures of the industry in that sense. And he's still recognized as as being so. So as far as his non-musical life went, he served in the Second World War. He was married, divorced, and then married again. And the second time, his marriage was to the love of his life, Estelle. Yes, sir. He, he, was, uh, he was not in Europe, but he was in the Army for a little while. And uh, he was married first to a lady in Kentucky. And, and by the way, I just, just brought to light, and I suspect there'll be more of this moving forward, uh, that the official, I just discovered somebody brought to my attention and I never could find it during the time of writing the book, but uh, somehow or another, somebody stumbled across a, a note in a newspaper that uh, his divorce was on the grounds of abandonment, uh, cruelty and an abandonment, which I think is sort of the canned term for he was spending all of his time at the Grand Ole Opry instead of at home. <laughs> uh, not to make light yeah. of the divorce, but I, I think that's kind of what that meant. But anyway, but he did then meet the really who seemed the lady who seemed to be the love of, of his life, a lady named Estelle Aikman, who was from Middle Tennessee, and he did get married, and this is who he was married to throughout the rest of his life. Who, who by the way, uh, was with him everywhere he went. <laughs> so I, I guess she decided, uh, okay, he's not going to go off. We're going to go if he goes to the Grand Ole Opry. I'll be there too. And by the way, he never drove anywhere, so she did a lot of the driving. And and they didn't have children, right? No, sir. No children. 
So at, at, at some point, he purchases some acreage outside of Nashville, and he does this with fellow country music singer Grandpa Jones. Yes, sir. Grandpa and Ramona Jones and David and Estelle Aikman were very, very close. They were very much peas in a pod, as they say, and they they bought a good, fairly good number of acres up there, over 100, about 140 acres or so. And they had houses right together. And, and when I say the houses are right together, I, I've been there. I've stood right in Stream Bean's house and looked right at the house that the Joneses lived in. And it, I would say the distance between the houses is probably not more than 15 paces. Uh, they are literally right beside each other. And they were very, very close. And this was in Ridgetop, Tennessee, which was uh, north of Nashville, about 20 minutes north of Nashville. What kind of home did the Aikmans have? Well, he had, as David and Estelle Aikman had a very, very tiny house. I would imagine it, it can't, it couldn't have been over 600 square feet, maybe something like that. Uh, two, basically two rooms. As far as I can tell, as far as I know, I don't think they actually had indoor plumbing at the time. So uh, they, it was a very tiny house. And David Aikman was quite tall, as I mentioned earlier, I can tell you standing on the back porch of that house myself, I, I'm only about 5'8 or so. I, even I had to kind of bend over to, to get underneath the eave of that back porch. So he would have been really having to <laughs> struggle to get, he'd had to duck pretty far to get under there. But uh, they had that little tiny little house, what we would call probably a tiny house. And then the Jones's house was a bit bigger right next door. The Aitman house was red, the Jones's house was white. And they had a cave, they actually had a cave, kind of a famous cave back behind the house. It's now a famous cave. A lot of caves in that part of Tennessee, middle Tennessee. And um, anyway, though that, and then they had those two houses. There was a cave in the back and a sort of a spring coming out of it. And then both uh, mainly hills, but also some pasture land. They did have a cattle gate. Uh, as for whether or not they had cattle, it seems maybe they may have actually had cattle at one time or another, but at the time of his death, I don't believe there was any, I'm not aware of any mention of them having it. Uh, but anyway, so that was basically what it is, rural, out on a, a rural route. So maybe, hopefully that describes it well enough. You have to drive pretty far on the on a driveway, uh, kind of a gravel driveway over a, a ditch and then up to it uh, to get to the house. Yeah. So the 1950s come and go. And with it, the era of, of Elvis, oh, yeah. uh, rock and roll becomes popular. Um, and into the 1960s, country music starts becoming more uh, mainstream. But, but String Bean is still an old-timey act, right? How, how does his act adapt, or does it? Well, you know, it's interesting. It, it kind of doesn't. <laughs> Uh, the in a way, the, the the currents of music strangely end up adapting back to him. Really, Stream Bean, he was somebody who didn't really change much. That was another thing about him. I think he was a kind of an anchor. He was definitely a bridge in the country music industry from the earliest days until the time of his death. But he was, at the time that Elvis sort of hit it big, you know, obviously right there in the middle of the 1950s, Stream Bean was on a touring with a kind of a traveling circus kind of a thing. In fact, an interesting little detail is that String Beans, the guy he was working with at the time named Tommy Scott, actually tried to hire Elvis Presley 
and that didn't work out. They couldn't agree on the price, so they just had a, a this guy, Tommy Scott, had another fellow who was already working in that group just grow his hair out and look dress up like Elvis and basically present himself as a as a kind of an Elvis impersonator. It's a kind of funny thing to think that Stream Bean and Elvis types were both uh, these very strange-looking figures were touring at the same time. Elvis was so strange in his moment. Uh, if you go back and look at those Ed Sullivan shows and you see the acts, the very buttoned-up acts that were being performed at that time, and then you see Elvis come out with his shirt unbuttoned and his eyeshadow on and his hair gleaming. He looks like somebody just came from Mars. And it was sort of a couple of strange-looking fellows really doing this the show. And it was a time when you had Pandit and Vampira and Liberace and all kinds of colorful figures on TV. And so it was a kind of an interesting moment. But Stream Bean, in a way, just dug in, really. He was somebody who dug into the old-time act. Uh, unlike some people who really tried to change, he really didn't. And he got connected with a recording label, Stardust, uh, Starday, uh, Stardust, Starday in uh, Nashville. And, you know, they were they just started... They dug into recording the old time music. They they found a market for it, especially for people, adults living in rural areas. And they started selling these LPs, these long playing and even super long playing or extra long playing albums. And they knew that they liked that. And String Bean had enough of a following from the Grand Ole Opry to make that work. But it, it is a it's an issue in a way. Country in a way, country music always has this, and it it becomes an issue about every decade that country music has to figure out how to keep its roots, but still remain relevant for somebody like string bean. He, he, he was a guy who in a way was older when he was younger. He, he was an older kind of a guy. Grandpa Jones is the same way. He, he was calling himself grandpa Jones when he was in his twenties. And it was a great marketing plan because he could never outgrow it, never get too old for it. But unlike say Frank Sinatra, who, by the time you get to the late 60s and early 70s, he's trying to figure out how to stay relevant. Uh, Dean Martin famously knocks the Beatles out of number one with Everybody Loves Somebody. They're trying to figure out how to, they're all trying to figure out how to stay relevant. In a way, Stream Bean just kind of dug in. And because he was so frugal, he could get by without really making that much money, really, you know, even though he wanted to, he wanted to make him have a million dollars. But anyway, he just kind of stuck with it. And then things began to turn back his way, most significantly when in the late 1950s and certainly in the 1960s, the folk music scene came into being. And suddenly people like Pete Seeger, who is strangely parallel in some ways to Stream Bean, uh, but many others really began to promote the kind of music that Stream Bean had been playing all along. So he ends up becoming relevant all over again. What's old becomes new again for him, and he becomes very relevant, and he finds an audience. One of the really interesting moments is his going to the University of Chicago to play the Chicago Folk Festival, and you can see a picture of him. I wasn't able to get enough a good enough quality picture to include it in the book, but there's a great photograph of him in, in the old program from the year he was there, and he's dressed in a, a kind of a an edgy little outfit. He's not wearing his accustomed costume, but something that makes him look a little more beatnik, actually. So, so in some ways, it's an interesting thing how he manages to stay relevant and and yet uh, really without changing 
really that much at all. And in fact, maybe the best example of this, I don't mean to give too long an answer to this, Eric, but maybe the best answer to this would, or example of this kind of thing would be his record, that crazy Vietnam War, which is kind of like a protest song, but it is just a rehashing, <laughs> just sort of repackaged protest song that he had been singing that was from the World War, like all the way back to the Spanish War. It was a very old, you know, all the way back to Theodore Roosevelt, basically. So this was a, a kind of a good example of his way of just keeping to the old, but, you know, finding ways to represent it, I guess you could say. Sure, sure. And he becomes a regular on Hee Haw. Mm-hmm. In the early days of the show, so so people across the country definitely knew who he was. Mm-hmm. But but I'd I'd like to go back to this lifelong mistrust he had of banks. He 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 of course lived through the Great Depression, um, so it's understandable. Um, he he saw what happened to the banks in in 1929 1930. But as someone who came from a, a poor family and who, whose goal it was to make a million dollars. String Bean, once he reached that level, readily and openly bragged about how rich he was. And, and he would pull thousands of dollars from his wallet, right, to, uh, apparently to show off. And his uh, friends became deeply, deeply concerned about his loose relationship with money. Yes, sir. Absolutely. This is all true. And so some of the people I got to talk to, the late Mark Jones, the son of Grandpa Jones, really stressed the point you're making that Stream Beans fans and friends, including Grandpa Jones, were very concerned about his doing this practice, this thing of carrying the cash around and keep it in his overalls pocket. I think he saw it as a kind of a joke, Stream Bean. But according to Mark Jones, the son of Grandpa Jones, he said, he said, listen, my dad was constantly telling him, you're going to get yourself killed someday doing this. And he was not the only one. I also had the honor of speaking with Ronnie Stoneman, who was part of a family called the Stoneman family. And by the way, they were another interesting group that would, in the 60s, would be doing a TV show wearing go-go boots and all that, but playing basically country music and old folk type music. But anyway, they... Uh, she, I remember talking to Ronnie Stoneman, and she said the uh, same thing. She said so many times, listen, uh, Stream Bean, I'm worried about you carrying this money around. And uh, she she actually visited the house, and Estelle, Stream Bean's wife, told her and showed her cans, uh, vegetable cans and so forth, that had money in them that they kept in the freezer. So they were very, they kept, uh, who knows how much money. I would just say about this that they where no stream bean was known to carry as much as $5,000 on him in the early 1970s is a lot of money. And uh, also though, he, he may have had as much as 20,000 or more dollars in the house at any given moment. Uh, I've talked to the, the current owners of his house and they've had some interesting things to say, even about that cave in the back of the house and some things there that might also might suggest even that there might've been some money kept there. So who knows? You know, it's hard to know for sure. It, I will say this, despite all the talk about banks, it's they definitely kept some cash in a strong box in a bank. And the family lawyer, I had the pleasure of talking to him at one point, and he was talking about counting that after their deaths. And and then there there were claims at the time of the death, the murders, that they had some money 
the Aikmans kept some money in some savings accounts too. So who knows where it all is? Who knows how much money they actually got? Allegedly, Streambean claimed he did hit the million mark. I really don't know. It is hard to know those things, of course. But but anyway, that's that was very much uh, the thing. And this news got around town. It got around Nashville. And Nashville had been getting rougher anyway. The Grand Ole Opry, the Ryman Auditorium was downtown and uh, of course, people can visit there today, and parts of the year, the Grand Ole Opry is still held there. But at the time, in the late 60s and early 70s, there were a lot of prostitutes around, a lot of drug addicts, a lot of just people, you know, people would be standing in line to go to the Opry, and they're being accosted, you know, and, and this is really what drove the building of the new Opry House out on the edge of town, where there were not these sort of rougher elements. So things were... Nashville was all had become pretty rough, really, by that time. So would you walk through with us November 10th, 1973, the, the final day of life for Stringbean and his wife, Estelle? Yeah, I'd be glad to. You know, it was a day, it was a pretty cold day, and uh, it was a Saturday, and it was uh, getting toward the end of the college football season, and... Uh, I believe Vanderbilt, <laughs> if I remember correctly, I think Vanderbilt was playing in town in Nashville that day. And it was uh, been it had been a, the temperatures had fallen. Stream Bean would have gotten up and cut some firewood that morning. Uh, this his neighbor remembered going out and cut cutting firewood with him. He had a chainsaw from a another country music comedian who was from Yazoo City, Mississippi, named Jerry Clower. And he had a Jerry Clower would tell a story about a a guy named Marcel Ledbetter that uh, attacked a, a county line joint with a, a chainsaw. And so the McCullough Chainsaw Company gave him some promotional chainsaws and he gave one to Stream Bean. And so Stream Bean would have cut the wood with that. And then uh, later on in the afternoon, um, he and his wife Estelle drove in their car. They drove a Cadillac. Uh, they actually had a station wagon that was their everyday car. But the one indulgence, the one thing they splurged on, was that every year they traded in for a new Cadillac uh, and they would just start the mileage at zero. And then at the end of the year, they would write down the mileage and use that for their taxes. And they thought maybe the Cadillac uh, sort of lived up to maybe their seeming like big stars. He even wrote a song called Herding Cattle and a Cadillac Coupe de Ville, kind of a joke song. This particular Cadillac was green. And uh, anyway, he got in the he put his banjo in there and he carried also a little 22 revolver and uh, they headed off to Nashville and they played that night. And uh, he was introduced by Tex Ritter, the father of John Ritter of Three's Company of Fame and other things. And Tex Ritter introduced Stream Bean on the Grand Ole Opry that night and he played uh, some piece, played some numbers to big, big applause. And, uh, and when it was over with, he left early because the next morning he was going to be getting up and going to Virginia. Uh, Grandpa Jones, his buddy, was going to drive him up to the state of Virginia, and they were going to do some hunting up there. Uh, that night during the Opry, his wife, Estelle, backstage was talking about how rough Nashville was. You never knew when somebody was going to knock you in the head, take your money. And so there had been some talk about that, and Ronnie Stoneman and little Jimmy Dickens both, they had a little, maybe a premonition, they claimed, at least later they said that they had a premonition that maybe Stream Bean was going to be in trouble that night. And, and he said, well, you don't need to worry. I got my pistol down. I got my friend here in my pocket. Anyway, they left that night and uh, 
they headed back up, uh, left the Opry early, and they headed up to their home. And then they had an encounter. And uh, they, got, they got home probably earlier than the people who were waiting for them expected them to get there. But anyway, there were people waiting for them, and there was uh, shots were fired. And uh, by and within a short period of time, uh, Stream Bean was killed, um, shot through the heart, right directly through the heart. Uh, one time, only one shot. And Estelle uh, seems to have run from the house. Was appears to have been running away from the house. She was shot uh, in the back of the head and also in the, I believe, it was the left arm, if I remember correctly. And then the bodies were found the next morning by Grandpa Jones, who uh, got up uh, kind of early in the morning and drove over. He didn't live he didn't live next door anymore. He had moved uh, this time a little bit farther away, but uh, he drove over to pick up his friend, and he noticed there was no smoke curling out from the chimney. Stream Beam would get up and build a fire every morning, and there was no smoke from the chimney, and he knew something was wrong. And then he saw Estelle's body in the field there right by the cattle gate, and then he hurried out to the house and saw that Stream Bean's body was, Stream Bean's body, uh, Stream Bean was lying face down, uh, you know, uh, well, I think when they found him, he may have been face, no, he's face down, face up. I'm trying to remember if he was face down or face up, but anyway, he's lying across the floor right in front of the fireplace there. Back after this quick break. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist? When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. 
who knows what history today holds. Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned again. Yeah, I I think the photo in your book showed him uh, uh, face down. Yeah, that picture may have been taken after the police had turned him over, actually. But anyway, that was that was that's what I can tell you for sure. Now, as far as what exactly happened that night, um, there are two or three different stories. It's not entirely clear, maybe who all was actually there, but there was certainly a story that developed that has been accepted as the standard story. And of course, I'm glad to talk through that if you would like for me to. Yeah, yeah, I definitely want to ask you about that. Um, so, so the police arrive and word of the murders spread, uh, within the country music community and well beyond string beans, uh, friend Roy Acuff gets to the house before the police even do. in, in fact, and when the house is searched, uh, there are cigarettes, beer cans, right. two different calibers of, of bullets found. So based on this evidence, what is the initial theory about what happened to the Aikmans? Well, I think the whole thing was pretty baffling to them at first. You know, they they were trying to figure out, one of their first things was try to figure out, uh, you know, how many people were there. And so they looked at the different types of cigarettes and and tried to to decide. I think they were not clear. I think they... They thought that maybe there were there was more than one person involved. The beer cans were a sign. Also, that was a tell because there had, Stream Bean had some beer. They had, they had been drinking his own beer, but uh, there were some cigarettes and so forth that seemed to be kind of a tip off toward uh, multiple people being there. So they they tried to make sense of that. They had they also confronted kind of a difficult uh, scene in terms of the. Uh, the metal that was there, I guess you could say. So there were a number of 22 rounds. But one of the things that was a little bit difficult is that there had been a a shootout at that house several years earlier. And uh, the police would not have known that going into it. So trying to figure out which bullets were fired when and where and how and so forth uh, became kind of an issue. But anyway, it was uh, there were 22 casings and then there was a 38 uh, that rolled out of Stream Bean's clothing. I asked a gentleman one time about that. I thought, well, isn't that kind of weird that it would have gone through his body and not like they would have been trapped by his jacket? You know, I would have thought that bullet shot, you know, shot at a close range would have lodged in the wall or something. But anyway, this gentleman I was talking to was fairly expert on ballistics, said, no, that, that could happen. So when they turned Stream Bean's body over, this, this, uh, round uh, sort of rolled out. Uh, but anyway, yes, there were a number of different uh, casings there. And from that, they began to try to piece together. And one of the things they decided is that maybe, by the way, none of Stream Bean's own guns, and he had quite a few, none of them were in the house. They had been taken. Grandpa Jones testified, uh, provided, I should say, the information of what kind of guns he had. And the police began to think that some of those shots were probably fired by a string bean himself so that there was maybe a shootout that night. It looked like maybe string bean had a scuffle, had a bruise on his knuckle, uh, one on his knee, suggesting that he had had maybe thrown a punch or something. 
So that, you know, they were trying to make sense of that, but there were a lot of things that didn't make sense. They had a canine unit that followed a trail out on the field up to a house and then lost the, the trail. The Aikman's uh, station wagon had been driven to a nearby quarry and abandoned, and they were and the police were trying to find something there. So they were they were as far as the evidence, and then there was the problem of all the press, the country music, as you mentioned, Roy Acuff, and there were a number of other country music figures there. But the press, I think there was a helicopter out at one point, but there were a lot of people on the ground, and there was a lot of evidence probably destroyed in the process. This is one of the things that uh, Tommy Jacobs believed or noticed or saw when he was uh, doing the investigation that day. So it's it's a little bit confusing. It's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what all was there. But they basically, I think by the end of the day, they had to, the investigators had decided there was more than one person there. I think they already believed there was a, a shootout, you know. And then they had decided that the motive was money because... A uh, number of the country. One of the problems too was they couldn't. None, nobody, nobody, none of the country music people could think of the Aikmans having any enemies. So because they couldn't think of that, they couldn't figure out why in the world anybody would have killed them. So, but they did tell the police about Stream Bean having money, having cash on him, and that was kind of that's led the police to think that this was about money, even though there was three thousand dollars on Stream Bean's body and two thousand on Estelle's, and this is sort of the rub of the whole case. If it's done for money, why was that money left behind? On the other hand. No mention was ever made of any money left in the freezer or or anywhere like that. So, you know, was there money taken from the freezer uh, or was that just a myth? You know, did did that even happen or had that happened at one point, not at the time of the murders? So there was a lot of confusion about it, but and they didn't really know who to even to begin to question. They had two people, including one of whom was Stream Bean's neighbor and uh, who had been helping him cut wood that day. And the two of them, uh, or he and this other guy, were kind of uh, suspects. But really, I, don't, I think the police didn't really think there was much there. I, really, overall, the sense that I got from the, from everything I could read uh, about it, everything I could learn about it, was that by the end of the day, there they were probably many more questions than answers by the end of that first day. However, it was only a day or two later that uh, this news broke, and the, the country music industry was terrified. terrified terrorized and terrified. And the the city of Nashville uh, suddenly had to face the fact that it had big city problems and it was very devastating. And you'll, you'll still hear people talk about that in Nashville uh, or in the country music industry. But anyway, the there it was the case that a day or two later, an anonymous call was made to the Nashville, Tennessean newspaper uh, with a person saying that he had committed the crime, that he had been at the scene of the crime and his partner had killed Stream Bean with his own gun. So that, that was that was about what the police had, I think, in the next in the first couple of days of the investigation. Right, yeah. Uh, String Bean had rigged a makeshift burglar alarm, right? Right. That's what they, that's what one of his colleagues uh, said. You know, I have to tell you that in the process of doing the research for this book and doing the writing, I must confess that I found that I found that to be kind of hard to verify. Um, there, he, Oscar Rollins, a colleague of Stream Beans, claimed that he did have that this uh, kind of 
a string, literally a string strung across the cattle gate, and that if it was down, that would be the tip-off. And so it makes sense that that is what happened, and that's how Stream Bean would have known. The idea was maybe that he knew there were people in the house, and that that, that Stream Bean broken is what let him know about it. Uh, it could be that. Uh, it's a little bit hard to say, though, because the, the murderers actually ended up parking on the road out from the house, and then they walked around from behind. So they went to the back door. So I don't know if that quite nails that down, you know. So I, I guess for me, I, I'm a little bit uh, personally, I should say, not totally sure about that. But that was the claim that he did have a very low tech, uh, what would you call it? Um, I can't think of the word, a security device, I guess. But that's that was the claim. Yeah. So there is a huge funeral all the country music stars pay their respects. Yeah, the funeral was very big. In fact, um, Ronnie Stoneman had told me at one point that she re- personally remembered not only all the country music people being, all these famous country music people being at the funeral, but also uh, just regular everyday people. She particularly remembered firemen lining up the road uh, all the way up uh, going toward um, where they're buried, which is not too far from Ridgetop. Uh, a cemetery. They're buried in the same cemetery where a number of other country music stars are buried, and uh, but there were a lot of just regular everyday people who lined up to see to see the hearse drive by the hearses. Yeah, so it's November fourteenth when the police get a pretty big break in the case. You write that a man named Felix Elliott, uh, in, in jail on an arson charge. Right. reveals some in- interesting information, evidently in an effort to uh, lessen his own troubles. Yeah, he w- he was already in custody, and and you know really this this uh, at this point suddenly the story shifts in a, in a way toward these a, a totally different cast of characters. Felix Elliott being one of them, uh, saying that he had heard some people talk of, talking about committing this crime, uh, not necessarily murder, but going and robbing a country music star. And uh, it's interesting because uh, at this point, there enters into the scene the district attorney at the time, who was a guy named Tom Shriver, who was an interesting guy. Uh, so the trial has this kind of John Grissomy kind of feel about it because Shriver was a kind of, he had dark hair and he kind of wore these horn rim glasses and he was kind of a kind of a good looking guy. He kind of, he would sort of put you in mind of... Um, yeah, kind of sort of a Sherlock Holmes looking kind of profile, uh, maybe Basil Rathbone type of profile, and he had this, I don't know, kind of a way about him. He was a he was a politician. In fact, I didn't mention this in the book, but he was actually up for re-election that year, and so there was he had quite a bit of motivation to to make this work. He uh, his dad was from his dad was actually from a place called War Trace uh, out in Middle Tennessee. And, you know, he kind of grew up in the country and he had established himself. I think he was involved with the Garden Club in Nashville and so forth. So they were kind of Nashville, kind of late, later, lately established Nashville establishment. They weren't old, old Nashville money, but they had kind of settled themselves into Nashville. And he was a guy who had gone to Vanderbilt. And I think he was uh, pretty well ensconced in the Nashville scene. He loved bluegrass music. He played in a bluegrass band and he really involved himself in the trial far more than would have been normal. So it was a kind of an interesting 
kind of a situation because, you know, the situation with Felix Elliott is that he was connected with this family called the Browns. And um, really he was connected in a lot, well, a lot of ways with Charlie Brown. That is literally the guy's name, Charlie Brown. And <laughs> he was a guy, you know, he was a welder. He had a welding business just up the road, really, from Stream Bean and uh, Greenbrier, Tennessee, just not very, very close to Ridgetop. And his brother's name was Doug Brown, and he worked for American Marine Company with his cousin, John Brown, as in the John Brown who was involved in the activities right before the Civil War. So these names are pretty sort of strangely basic and yet strangely iconic. Anyway, this Felix Elliott knew them, and he had heard talk uh, of uh, their looking to commit this crime. One of the things, though, that is maybe not always so evident is that Charlie Brown actually was quite involved in the country music industry. So he and his wife had a, a booking agent, a talent agency, and they were known to have had lunch with Stream Bean and Estelle not long before the murders. In fact, there has been there have been claims that, and I didn't put this in the book, but I've discovered since then that uh, I've been looking for some kind of evidence. I still haven't nailed it down, but I've heard some some talk since then from some people who would know that, in fact, uh, Charlie Brown had booked some dates for Stream Bean. So, you know, that's a connection. This It's not as if, oh, the rumor got out about Stream Bean and then these couple of ne'er-do-wells committed this crime. The Charlie Brown connection is kind of, kind of intense, actually. And, uh, in fact, Doug Brown, there was mentions at one point in some of the documentation during the trial there had been, during one of the little depositions, there had been mentioned that Doug Brown had been out on Stream Bean's property welding. So it kind of raises an interesting question about, you know, was Stream Bean surprised? Was he, was he really surprised by who was at his house that night? Or did he expect them to be at his house? You know, what all's involved there? I, I, at this stage of the game, I have no way of knowing. I, you know, at this stage, moment in time, I have no way of knowing. But there was a lot of talk that there was a yellow truck at the house that night and Charlie Brown had that, had that kind of a vehicle. So anyway, but that Felix Elliott said uh, there had been talk of that and it was, it was serious enough talk that the police believed they had something. Now, now, by the way, these investigators were under incredible pressure. They were under incredible pressure from the country music industry, from Nashville, from all kinds of directions, and they definitely wanted to make sure and have somebody, you know, they wanted somebody that they could look to. Uh, so they brought the they brought the Browns in. They brought John, Doug, and Charlie. I think they may have brought Roy in. That's another one of the brothers of Charlie and Doug. Anyway, they brought them in, and as soon as they got there, and this was, I think probably this was one of the biggest tip-offs for the investigators, is that once the Browns got downtown to Nashville at Metro, uh, at that point, Charlie Brown had the, the prescience and the know-how and the money to hire the most expensive and successful defense lawyer in the city, a guy named Joe Binkley. And Joe Binkley cost, you know, $3,000 up front cash. And he had made a career out of representing you know, as they say, widows at Bell Mead, you know, who whose husbands had conveniently died, you know, <laughs> and he and he was a guy who, you know, I mean, that was a lot of uh, it was a lot of it was a lot of money up front. And I think that the seriousness of it the, tipped off the police. I think they thought, now, wait a minute. 
how does this guy with the welding shop have the cash to pay this guy? How does he have the know-how to pay this guy? And uh, so Charlie Brown t- proved to be very formidable, but I think this was one of the tip-offs. Now, I can tell you from my viewpoint, uh, one of the questions that remains in my mind is just how much money was taken the night of that murder. It's a very fascinating thing that Charlie Brown, you know, there was $5,000 left on the corpses, but Charlie Brown had enough money to pay cash up front for Joe Binkley, and he had enough money to build himself a new welding business uh, building after this. So, you know, where, <laughs> where did that money go? You know, was there any taken or not? Uh, who knows? Right, right. And another man named Bill Downey comes forward. Uh, he actually just, just kind of shows up at Stringbean's house while the police are, are still processing the crime scene. And he reveals some really interesting stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, he does. Boy, this guy. <laughs> and again, listen, man, it's it's like a cast of characters. You know, this guy was a, a rounder, you know. He was a strange guy. You know, he came in and had this information, and uh, and then they were having some plumbing problems in String Bean's house, and he allegedly fixed them for him. And there was something about him. And this is one of the things that's hard to read through the it's kind of hard to read this through the court records, but it's very clear. When I say it's hard to read, it's hard to read why this happened. But for whatever reason, the investigators really took to this guy, Bill Downey. <laughs> uh, I really don't understand why there was something about him that tickled them, you know, that made them laugh, I guess. And they just always thought he was kind of funny and, and kind of a goofball, I guess. And I don't know, for some reason they liked him and they trusted him. And, Maybe if I had been in the house with him at the time, I would have thought the same thing. I don't know. It's hard for me to see it. To me, he just looks like a, a, a sort of another one of these outlaws, you know. But, uh, you know, he, later on in the trial, he would show up with stolen boots. He was wearing wearing stolen boots, and he was he didn't even realize he was wearing stolen boots until he had sort of forgotten he, that they were his stolen boots. And then when he remembered it in the courtroom, he was kind of trying to hide them. And somehow the police thought that was funny. So, you know, I don't know, like maybe, maybe 1972, 73 is a different moment. I don't know. But anyway, whatever the case, he, they believed in him and he became, it was the beginning of a beautiful relationship because he started coming in and telling them all these things that Doug was allegedly saying and that Doug was talking about everything he had done and, and, t- and that Doug had told the details of the story. And there, and over the course of this time, there developed what has become the standard story of the stream being murder. And then that was later written down. But anyway, that they, yeah, the, he became the prime informant and the police definitely, they trusted him, uh, even though he seems to me to be have not altogether trustworthy character, but they believed him and, you know, certainly was in their interest too. And, and that they started to tell a certain kind of story. I think what was interesting though, is that it was very clear that the Browns themselves were strategizing. Now, I want to make something really clear. I don't, you know, obviously there may sound like a certain uh, suspicion in my voice. I have no doubt at all that Doug and John Brown were at the the scene of the crime that night. I don't have any doubt about that. And I, uh, as far as kind of what happened, it it may well have happened the way they said. But um, it's an interesting thing that I I would say this. uh, Were they the only people there that night? That I'm not so sure of. But who knows? You know, there's no there's no way to prove it either way. And there are a lot of reasons to doubt that there 
would have that maybe Charlie would have been there because surely would that would have come out. But but Charlie was a pretty scary scary character as the investigators started to dig into his life. Uh, he was known for armed other armed uh, actions and so forth. So he he was um, a pretty tough customer, and he he clearly had some kind of pull uh, in the country music industry and um, you know in and around the Nashville area. So, but anyway, but Bill Downey. So my point in all this is that it's very clear that the Browns themselves were strategizing. And it could be that they thought, okay, we're not going to be able to get out of this without some kind of, we're going to get convicted sooner or later. It's probably going to be a trial. How do we kind of set this up in a way that can hopefully get everybody out of trouble? You know, I think that's how they were thinking. So, you know, what role did Bill Downey play in that? You know, did did Bill Downey, was he really doing this informing and nobody knew it in the Brown bunch? Well, it could be, absolutely could be. But uh when the more one looks at it, the more one kind of wonders a little bit about that. But anyway, that that was uh, Bill Downey, and he became really the the main informant uh, for this thing. And and the police really began to develop this story. The story that they developed was that there had been you know Stream Bean and Estelle had surprised John and Doug Brown. John and Doug Brown had come that night to rob the house, you know, to burglarize the house. They couldn't find the money, and so they sat down drank stream beans, drinks, smoked cigarettes, millions of cigarettes, and turned on WSM on the little white radio to listen for when stream bean would be, when the opera would be done, so they'd be ready for when they came back. But stream bean and Estelle left early. They came back and surprised these fellows. They had a shootout, and, and, John, and that John was the one. John and Doug's decided inexplicably to change weapons that night, uh, John took Doug's gun and Doug took John's gun. No reason ever given for why that happened, but that John uh, shot Stream Bean uh, first and then went out and shot Estelle. Uh, Doug, Doug was just kind of wrestling with Stream Bean and, and John shot uh, Doug, uh, Stream Bean and went out and killed Estelle and came back kind of laughing demonically and saying this was like being in Vietnam, where he had been, by the way. He had chased Estelle, sh- shot her, Right. And then when he caught up with her, she then in turn begged for her life. Right. And he shot her execution style. That's the story. And the and the the evidence does bear that out. I mean, who knows what she said, but yeah, that does bear that out. Yeah. Oh, poor woman. No, it's a terrible listen, it's a terrible, terrible grisly murder and scene. Terrible. So John Brown's attorney, Arnold Peebles enters the picture. Right. And not only does he want to enter an insanity plea for for his client, but John Brown also makes the claim that Charlie was the mastermind behind the robbery. Exactly. That he had set up the whole thing, that that he had given them $100, right. but that $100 was basically an advance payment for committing the crime. Right. That's how he saw that's how John saw it. John that's, John understood it to be that way, or at least that's what he said. And he claimed that Charlie had given them a couple of pills. And and now, by the way, these fellows, John and Doug, were known, the way they spent their Saturdays is they got to drinking whiskey and riding around the countryside. That's That was pretty much a normal Saturday for them. But that he had given, he claimed, John, that they had given, uh, Charlie had given them a couple of pills and and that John had passed out. And then when he woke up, they said that he had committed this crime. Now it turns out that he that when the the insanity 
portion of the trial, that hearing, when the insanity hearing was done, there was quite a bit of testimony from John's family that he had had experiences of committing violent deeds and blacking out and not remembering them. So, you know, that was in the background for what it's worth, you know, who knows. But but now Arnold Peebles, now he's another, (laughs) he's another interesting character. He's sort of the exact opposite in a way of Thomas Schreiber. You know, he didn't go to Vanderbilt. He went to the University of Tennessee Law School. Um, He was a lot scrappier. Schreiber was a little more genteel. Peebles, he was a lot scrappier. He also had a substance abuse issues. In fact, he had worked at one point for Thomas Schreiber, and uh, had he had actually been let go of for alcohol alcoholism, and so by the time of the trial, he he was actually hooked on cocaine. Certainly by the summer, probably already by the insanity hearing stage, but which was in July. But even after the, definitely after that, he was he was an interesting guy. You know, he's someone that if you listen to attorneys who remember him, he's they really have a lot of admiration for him. He, he was a larger than life character. I think they saw him as being very brilliant and he was trying certain things that were rather novel. He certainly wasn't the first person to, in history to present the matter of insanity, but um, the, the hearing, the particular way the hearing was done was a little bit unusual, mainly because of kind of the roles of defendant and prosecutor were kind of reversed. But anyway, Peebles, he, he had an idea. He believed that Charlie had done it, that basically he and Doug were setting up their cousin, John. They were, you know, that because John was such a stinker. And, and I think they thought, well, I think probably they thought maybe the strategy was that they would be able to get John out. You know, if they could get the insanity thing to work, that would get him, like in other words, say that Doug didn't have anything really to do with it. He was just there and that John that was blacked out. And so as a result, you know, basically, and then Charlie had gotten immunity. He had done a plea deal basically to get immunity. So I think that was their strategy. That, that's what I think was going on. And I think uh, probably Arnold Peebles, you know, but Peebles basically wanted to pin the whole thing on Charlie, not just as the mastermind, but even as the trigger man. He saw Charlie as the trigger man. One more quick break, a word from our sponsors. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, 
the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned for the final time. Then Doug out of the blue, offers a bombshell story to a local reporter, right? Correct. So he, so there were two major paper uh, newspapers in Nashville at the time, the Nashville Tennessean, which is still around, although it's now owned by USA Today. And then uh, the other uh, one was called, Nashville Tennessean was the morning paper, and the afternoon paper was called the Nashville Banner. And there was a reporter for the banner named Larry Brenton, and Larry Brenton uh, went, was summoned, uh, allegedly at least to, uh, well, Joe Binkley apparently set it up and summoned him, that is uh, Larry Brenton, to the workhouse. That was where John, I mean, uh, Doug and John both actually were being held at the time, kind of like a jail in Nashville. And they, uh, he summoned him and then Doug uh, gave, yes, as you say, yes, a bombshell confession. And this was where you get, you really get the official story and, the, one of the prosecuting attorneys working with Shriver was named Hal McDonough. And he, he says, I, I had the great honor to talk to him. He's the last person still from that trial alive. And he told me something interesting. He said, Joe Binkley had done this before, uh, basically had a, one of his defendants give a confession to a newspaper reporter and put it in the paper. And then he would use that confession as a way to get the voice of the defendant on the record in the trial without actually having to put the defendant on the stand. So the story went into pretty big detail. It's written in third person. In fact, I wanted, I had thought at one point about maybe including that confession in the appendix because it's a very interesting document. It's very sympathetic in a way with Doug, even though the story is, is hair raising but it's it's a story that kind of exonerates Doug in terms of the the murder part of it. He's he was definitely up to no good, but John comes out as the villain and Doug comes off as a kind of a hapless accomplice, you know. Uh, but yes, that and that came out in the newspapers and it was a huge deal. I mean, it was it was and many people. I will say this: I think for many many people, many readers, and I think since that time, many people have thought, okay, this is the confession story. The story is over, you know. But from the viewpoint, I think, of the lawyers, particularly Joe Binkley, he saw it as more of a strategy 
for getting Doug uh, a lighter sentence or or whatever he hoped to get. Right, right. And then at one point, members of the press go out. Was it with uh, Doug? So they, okay, so this is an, yeah. So they don't go. Doug, I think, stays put, but they do go out to the pond. There was a pond out not far from, you know, like basically close to um, the Browns' farm, and this is where they had taken the bag of materials, string bean items that string bean had, his papers and so forth, and also the murder weapons, and thrown them out there. And they go out there, and periodically, Larry Brenton and Sherman Nickens stop, and Larry Brenton's trying to find his way out there and he makes phone calls, mysterious phone calls, and nobody knows who they're made to. And I wish I had been able to include really, again, in a, you know, maybe in a different edition or something, I might include an appendix because it's really interesting in the, in the trial to listen to this part or read this part in which basically Brenton kind of consults and tries to figure out what he can and cannot say. When you read between the lines, it seems pretty obvious that he's talking to Charlie on the way out there who's guiding him to the pond, and then Charlie shows up right after they arrive. And uh, essentially, over the next day or so, they fish out these bags that belong to Stream Bean, and this confirms, you know, that they're there. But they never found the murder weapons. The murder weapons were never discovered. To this day, the the murder with well, a murder weapon, but really neither one. There was a shotgun and a thirty-eight. Neither one of them. Neither one has ever been discovered, which is a mighty curious uh, thing. Yeah, well, one of the interesting photos in your book. Part of what was in that bag was String Bean's costume, right? Yes, Including his glasses and his hat. And someone took a picture of the outfit, all sort of laid out on the grass. And it looks like String Bean is, is laying there, but without his body. Yes, sir. You know, if I, I just would like to pause for just a moment, moment, Eric, and I hope we're doing okay on time. But if I may just say, I don't want to interrupt what we're saying, but I just want you to know uh, that I, pre- how much uh, you're, I want to say this uh, this way, your questions and your close reading of this book um, mean the world to me. I just want you to know that um, I, I, the nature of your questions, the way you framed them and the details you picked up, and particularly that picture, which for me was so moving and so haunting. And it was something that I've hoped very much that other people, you know, that readers would pick up on. And the fact that you have and really all the questions you've asked and the way you've asked them have really blown me away. Uh, I feel very honored and very grateful to know that somebody who reads as carefully as you do has read this book. And um, I hope that comes across in the spirit. I mean it. Uh, As I'm sure you know, it's so much work. It's a lot of work to do what you do. It's a lot of work to do, the as you know, the writing and the podcast. It's so much work. And for somebody to be so on the details as you are, um, means the world to me. So I want you to know how much I appreciate that, if I may be allowed to say it. Oh, that's nice. I'm blown away. Thank you for the compliment. No, no. I, the compliments to me. And I, I really, to the book, you know, I appreciate it very much. You, Well, I mean, I mean it as a compliment to you, but I, I guess I'm the one that feels very honored. And uh, I just wanted you to know that. So, oh, that, that's nice of you to say, yeah. But anyway, but that, so, but sorry, just to 
to address that picture, yeah, that that uh, to me, it's one of the most haunting things when I ran across that picture. That two of the ha- most well, obviously, the pictures of the unfortunately, Mister. Mazakman dead on the floor, you know, in the field and on the floor, obviously, are terrifically haunting pictures. But two of the most haunting photographs that I came across that I was great, very happy to be able to include were the one the the one of the gentleman putting the the banjo away with uh, there's a group of them. It's almost an Iwo Jima like uh, kind of pose where they're putting that Vega number nine tuba phone away, uh, those stream beans in the car. And then the other one was the one you're talking about that where they laid out his outfit and it's stream bean, you know, because stream bean was this persona and David Aikman, his relationship to stream bean, I think was a very fascinating one and one that's not easily parsed out, but to see stream bean, the character laid out on the pavement, but deflated and empty. There was something about it that, uh, it was just so haunting to me, and it, it remains so. It, it's probably the most, uh, in a way, the saddest thing to me, and yet also the most essentially, it's very essentially string being in a way, you know, that persona, the idea of that persona being in a way something you can't kill. You might can deflate it, but you can't kill it. And uh, I don't know, it's a very haunting photograph. So I, I appreciate you very much, uh, all the work you do, you know, as I say, writing or podcast, the work you do in, in so many ways, but also your reading, your close reading is something that I I, I want to say on behalf of any writer who has the privilege of you reading their book and talking to them about it. Uh, I want to say thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, so the the evidence in, in this case was pretty overwhelming. Mm-hmm. String beans, guns, uh, the ones that were stolen were all tracked down and linked to the Brown family. Yes. There, there is no question at all about who did this, right? No, no, no. There's no question that the Browns did it. None at all. It had the question of how many of the Browns did it, maybe, but not the question that they did it at all. It's, it's uh, as you say, it's overwhelming. When they said, here, here where the guns are, that's where they were. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, they, you know, it's, it was an overwhelming case. It was a foregone conclusion. I mean, they, you know, when they brought the guns out and they had a diver who was down in there also part of the time, and when the, when the guns were produced and the bags were produced of stream beans stuff, it, it was, it was, it was a foregone conclusion with the trial. And of course the trial was held in Nashville. Everybody in the whole city knew about it. Uh, the judge was a guy named Cornelius and he, uh, he, he didn't, he was very, um, he, not only did he not want to have the trial anywhere, but Nashville, but he was very comfortable inviting the press in. So there was, it was really a very, um, there's a sense in which the whole thing was a kind of a spectacle, uh, in the sense that the punishment, uh, everything about it was, was played out very much in the public eye. Uh, that is to say, the the identifying of the the murderers and and all of that it was very um, public in a way. So uh, I think it, it was a type of spectacle in it. And that and I th- what I mean by that is I think the spectacle, to some degree, uh, it had. I think that spectacle to some degree served the function or the purpose of expiation. You know of of um, 
you know, kind of a cathartic, it had a cathartic role. I think there was a sense in which this trial was a, it was a trial, but it was also a public catharsis. And the contrast between, in other words, it had a cathartic role and the contrast between the Aikmans who were just so expressly innocent and the Browns who were so manifestly evil drew the whole scene in such a strong and sharply contrasted way that the story became, it became almost a a kind of a a story that, I don't know, it became like a story that that had like big universal implications. It it was a classic story of evil versus good. Uh, And I think that, I think that registered not necessarily consciously for people, but looking back upon it, it's, it's very evident that, that was at work, that this was this was a case of evil people who represent an evil moment in the city murdering in a brutal way the most innocent. You know, this wasn't George Jones. You know, this wasn't anybody who was getting in trouble. The Aikmans were peace-loving, quiet, innocent people. And so that was the, that was the effect of it. And uh, it was... Um, archetypal almost in that sense. Yeah. Do you think the Browns um, in, in whatever manifestation of, of the family was present at the house, do you think that they went there with the intent to kill the Aikmans all along? Or do you believe that when string bean, began shooting at them, that was what sealed their fate? Well, I think that is a very, this is another great question. And, uh, of course, it's, I I don't know how to answer it. Uh, You know, obviously, I know, according to John and Doug, they would claim that it it was the shooting that, they would, Doug claimed that the stream bean shooting is what created the shootout, that they didn't mean to do anything. But the reality is they showed up with weapons. Uh, you know, Doug and John Brown showed up with weapons. Obviously, you can perform an armed robbery, I guess, and not be intending to kill somebody, and things can get out of hand. I know that is something that can happen, but but I would say this. Uh, I don't know. There are some curious things there. there. There are some mysteries there, actually. I mean, to me, one of the questions is, did String Bean and Estelle know that there was going to be somebody there meeting them that night? The answer seems obviously to be no, but I, I really don't know the answer to that. You know, String Bean gave a, I'll tell you something interesting. String Bean gave a, an interview the night that he was murdered. There was a reporter named Stacy Harris who did a, a taped interview with Stream Bean. And, you know, he was looking back over his life during that interview, uh, at least when she published an article based on it, he was talking about looking back over his life and what he had done and so forth and so on. And, uh, you know, that, that tape is not available. (laughs) That tape is, uh, you can't, you can't get that tape. So, um, you know, I don't know what's on, I don't know what's on there, you know, but it's, uh, it's, um, held in a certain repository and it's uh, not available to the public. So what does that mean? You know, I don't really know. Uh, I can just tell you that for myself, I have wondered. 
what were the intentions of the Browns? I have wondered, you know, as far as anybody knows, Stream Bean and Estelle had never made any enemies, and I don't see anything in their lives to suggest that. But I will tell you this. I happen to know enough about human nature to know that nobody's perfect. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's um, it's a little bit of a stretch to think that, well, say I'll say it this way. Could, could David Aikman in some way have run afoul of Charlie Brown in some way or another that could have precipitated some kind of disagreement? That could have escalated to violence or led to violence. Um, could have. It doesn't mean the stream bean did anything ugly. But uh, but the question of intention, in my mind, you know, you might one might say, well, why not take the word of Doug Brown that they didn't go there intending to kill somebody and that it all escalated? Why I doubt him, but I would say, why I believe him? I mean, this is a murderer. Uh, this is a guy who had been by the way, who was also had been a, who had been who was also identified as committing robbery, and that was just lost in the shuffle because it was such a small crime compared to this horrible murder. But these were not uh, these were not nice folks, and they're not people to be believed. And it was in their interest to say that they didn't mean to to commit this thing. They were trying to get out of trouble. So so what are their intentions? That's a long answer. I'm so sorry, my answers are so long, but. These are very provocative questions, and they're not answered very easily or very readily or very simply or quickly. But the question of intention, in my mind, is uh, remains rather open. I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, as far as my opinion, I, you know, it's kind of hard to say. I, I can tell you, you know, I can't give you anything definitive, but deep down, I guess, in my view, I would, I'll say it this way, I wouldn't be surprised if there was intention for bodily harm to tell you the truth. Um, but I can't prove it if my life depended on it. It's just looking at it in the year 2023, which, by the way, is the 50th anniversary of the murders. But looking at it that from that viewpoint, uh, you know, I, I guess I have questions about that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had hoped to be able to answer all of them, but I feel that they're only they're still there. But there may be people who, who might have access to things that I don't or uh, you know, I don't. My hope is that this this book will will spur people to be interested in well, not just in the murder, but String Bean's life and and so forth. But you know, there may be people who have better access than I do on some of those things. But uh, they're, they're questions in my mind. Yeah. So, which members of the the Brown family served time for this? Are any of them still alive? And have there been any opportunities? for you to interview any of them? Well, that's a, well, first of all, they were, Doug and John were convicted. Charlie was never tried. He, again, did kind of a plea deal, an immunity deal, and uh, he was never tried. Char even though Peebles, you know, in the trial, essentially accused him of being the trigger man. But um, the, the jury, in the end, the jury, you know, voted to convict the uh, both Doug and John of first-degree murder, the, they were given life sentences. The, uh, at that time, the death penalty had been abolished, so that was not an option. That wasn't on the table. The jury members came out uh, saying, we don't, we're not really sure what happened, but we're sure that Doug and John Brown were there <laughs> and that they were involved in the murder. That's about the best they could come up with. Arnold Peebles' defense case was surely one of the worst defense cases in the history. By this time, he was so far gone on cocaine that 
if you look at the court records, I mean, it's almost it's almost disjointed. I mean, it's it's such a shamefully presented defense case that it's just it was utterly ineffective. And so, really, the, and I think also all those pressures and everybody. I mean, it was it was a foregone conclusion about the guilt thing. Uh, but the jurors came. The jurors came out and said, "We we're not really sure what happened." But anyway, they were uh, convicted. They were put in prison, and Doug uh, wound up. Uh, he became very quiet. He died. He died in a prison uh, in Tennessee. That uh, it was actually the prison. I believe the gentleman who who killed um, Martin Luther King Jr. I think was in prison there at one point. And then uh, Hannibal, the fictional character Hannibal Lecter was supposed to go to that particular prison, but I think he never did make it. I think he broke out before he wound up there. But anyway, that's where Doug actually ended up living, and he was in that prison, and he passed away there and was buried, I think, in the cemetery, I think on the grounds or nearby. So he passed away. Doug, that was Doug Brown. John Brown can, is alive to this day, and he was actually paroled. It was very controversial parole in 2014. After many, many attempts, he finally was paroled in 2014. I went and tried to make contact with him and talk with him. He was hired on by a very large uh, church north of Nashville, not too far from Ridgetop, actually, a place called the Cornerstone Church. The minister there hires ex-convicts, and uh, John was hired. I went. That was the best way I could figure out to try to talk to him, and uh, I was told that he wanted to move on from this, and which I can understand, of course. Uh, I would love to talk to him. I would love to, you know, the story is a great story of redemption for him. He he found religion and he was a model prisoner. He was, uh, by all accounts, had changed his life and, and has changed his life. And I, I thought it would make for quite a story to talk to him and to get his side of the story, get his thoughts on it, uh, because I think it's a story, a tremendous story of redemption. But I can also understand that he wanted not to talk about it anymore. As for Charlie Brown, it's my understanding he's still alive. Uh, it turns out that I have a various family and friends in the Nashville area, and uh, I have heard sort of indirectly about his being alive. And uh, by various accounts, I've heard that it's people who know him uh, believe that he was innocent and made a plea deal and didn't have anything to do with the murder. And uh, so... You know, it's not my place to question them by any means, but my understanding is he's still alive and well. And, you know, I, and I can understand if he doesn't want to be connected with all this, you know, this is all certainly in the past, you know. But uh, anyway, that's that's my understanding. As far as talking to them, again, I tried to make a connection with John, and um, who knows that there may be a time of doing that at some other point. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through this case. I so appreciate it. So, so you've got a website, correct? Yes, sir. Yep, TaylorHaygood.com. Uh, yes, sir, absolutely. And, and the book is available. Um, so the book is available on Amazon, of course, and Barnes & Noble. And there are various, there are independent bookstores. I noticed there uh, seems that Powell's Books has it. Uh, there's some places in Virginia. So there's different kind of regional places. I know Barnes and Noble, uh, certain stores carry it. Uh, but I think they're mainly in the Tennessee, Kentucky region. So, uh, but anyway, it's, it's, it's readily available in uh, paperback. Uh, usually it's about 1995, I think for paperback. Sometimes it gets discounted on Amazon. Uh, it's also available on Kindle. 
And uh, there is a hardback edition, but it's a what they call a library edition. So it's it's printed on the cover, the the cover like the hardback cover is printed, and it's mainly to stand up to the wear and tear for libraries. I know there are a number of libraries that have it, so it should be available there. And then there's talk of maybe having an an audio version coming out at some point. So I, I don't know quite where things stand with that at this at this stage, but. Uh, it is. A, it may be available in the audio form at some point. Cool. Well, well. Gosh, thank you again. Oh, thank you. Listen, I I really mean it. Uh, I just uh, I want to tell you again how much I appreciate uh, all of your work and everything you're doing. And uh, this to be a part of this program uh, means a tremendous amount to me. And um, I uh, I hope that I guess I would like to say that probably my biggest hope is that people will read about Stream Bean, read about his life. It's one of the great lives, I think, uh, of somebody who remained humble and remained, uh, didn't, didn't get above his raising. And even though he, he enjoyed great fame and a, a measure of wealth, he stayed very true to his roots. And I think he's, uh, in that sense, somebody to be admired. And he had some very interesting things he was doing with his music. We didn't necessarily talk about that that much, but he does some very interesting things with his music. And he's somebody I think that it's a, it's an I think it's an interesting story. And of course, I think the trial and the the investigation and the murder of the trial and so forth are also are there. But above all, I hope people can you know rediscover Stream Beans music if they've never heard of him and and see kind of the joy that he brings because it's, it's really, it's American roots music and it's um, music that's very inviting in a lot of ways. And I hope that uh, his star uh, can continue to rise. It's an unfortunate thing. Not only is it a terrible thing that he was murdered, but it's an unfortunate thing uh, that his life should have ended the way it did because I think had he lived, he, he would have gone on to be remembered as being one of the legends of country music, along with his friend Minnie Pearl or Loretta Lynn or whomever, you know, all those people, he was he was one of those uh, legends. So I hope that that will be something that can come from this uh, for him. Once more, I have been speaking to Taylor Haygood. He is author of the book String Bean. The Life and Murder of a Country Music Legend. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.